Welcome to the Arts Report for June 25th, 2014. Tonight on the show, we talk with crime writer D.B. Carew about his debut thriller, The Killer Trail. I'll tell you about the Nick Cave film and Man Up Against Suicide exhibit. Plus, we'll play some great music. Everybody, it's great to be back on the Arts Report. I was off in Calgary last week, and if there's time, I'll tell you a little bit about my trip. Uh, Sahar and Rohit took over. They had a superstar guest, Linda. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we'll get the podcast up on that soon and share it on our social media. So, first off, I want to talk about D.B. Carew. He's a colleague of, of mine at a provincial psychiatric hospital and uh, he's written a book I was like really excited to find out he had written this book and it's a work of fiction but it draws on his knowledge uh, from working in the area of forensic mental health so I was really excited to read the book it's been recently launched and I found it really kept me engaged from beginning to end. And, and so we talk about this in our interview, but found it was like very tight story, very hard-boiled kind of feel like hard-boiled detective, excellent dialogue with some great one-liners. And uh, especially I found that D.B. Carew is good at writing internal dialogue. So what the characters are thinking, but in very succinctly and Accurately, and and this sort of internal dialogue really helps move the story along. So he's got an excellent website, and you can check it out at dbcaru.com. So that's d b c a r e w dot com. And so yeah, it's one of the better websites I've seen. I give it a ten out of ten, with information about him. Uh, so his bio here said he was born in Newfoundland and Labrador, and he's been in BC for the past 18 years. He's got a master's degree in social work, and he's been working at a provincial forensic psychiatric hospital for 14 years. Wow. I wonder if I'll ever make it uh, 14 years. But he's a member of the Crime Writers of Canada, the Federation of BC Writers, and the Crime Writers Association. So in 2013, the Killer Trail was shortlisted for the Crime Writers Association Debut Dagger Award and is scheduled for release. Well, now it's actually out. It's okay. Don't get the phone, Dan. Because Dan's in, DJ Shakespeare's in the studio with me. Um, but we're just going to leave the phone because I'm just about to uh, play my interview with D.B. Carew. But I actually liked um, this little video they had on the the front page and it's sort of a depiction a visual depiction of the beginning parts of the story and and so I'm just going to play this little video and there's some parts of it that are kind of like text so I'm going to read those as it goes along and narrate that a little bit for you and then we're going to play our interview with Derek. It's done.
you found a phone and tried to return it. But it contained evidence of a murder. And now, you Wow, that was really fun. Thanks for indulging me. Uh, but you can find that video and lots of other information about the book, The Killer Trail, at dbcaroo.com. So now let's play our interview. So I'm very excited. We completed this interview yesterday. And so here it is, my interview with D.B. Carew. Okay, so you've written a book called The Killer Trail. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and sure. about when the book came out? Um, well, my name is Derek, and I um, was born and raised in Newfoundland. I moved out to B.C. in 93. I'm married. We have two children and actually a new puppy in the family now, so that's exciting. I've worked at a forensic psychiatric hospital for close to 15 years, and I've got my first book that was released on the 15th of May through New West Press, and it's called The Killer Trail. Yeah, so how did your, it's a, like, it's like a psychological thriller, and it's sort of set partially in a forensic psychiatric hospital. So for people who don't know, what is a forensic psychiatric hospital? So I guess the way I would describe it is if um, somebody is charged with a criminal offense and there's a question about that person's mental health, um, then that individual can be ordered for a court-ordered assessment and the forensic hospital would be one of those settings where that would take place where a psychiatrist does a court-ordered assessment and there are two types of assessments. Uh, one would be a fitness assessment, so looking at whether the individual at the time, when, when he or she goes to court, whether the psychiatrist's opinion is that that person will be fit to stand trial, meaning will they be able to understand the rules and the roles of the court and participate actively in that process in court. And the other type of assessment is NCRMD, uh, which stands for not criminally responsible on account of a mental disorder. And, that, and the assessment pertains to, at the time that this individual was alleged to have committed um, an offense, what was his or her mental state, and, and could that individual be considered a candidate to be found not criminally responsible on account of their mental disorder. So you kind of, uh, sometimes you hear that saying, write what you know, yeah. and in, in, in some ways this book reflects your personal experience in the sense that you know, the main character works in a forensic hospital like you do. So in what other ways did your work sort of influence the story? Well, interestingly enough, at least for me, interestingly, when I, I the story started with me finding a cell phone on, on a run, on a trail, and I thought I was doing the right thing, was trying to connect it back to the owner. And while I was trying to do that, I started asking the what-if questions around 
uh, well, what if I'm not doing the right thing? What if there's a, you know, a, a devious story behind this cell phone? So I started wondering how that phone got to be on the trail and, and who the owner might be and things like that. I wasn't originally intending to have a storyline that occurred to have anything to do with my day job. I was actually going to go in a different stream. But as you say, it's often suggested to write what you know or write what you're passionate about. And having worked in this field for 15 years in, in mental health, it became clear early on to me that I really did want to include a mental health component to the story. Mm -hmm. But having said that, recognizing that the story itself is fictional, the setting, fictional characters, you know, fictional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, it's a very tight story, I found. Like, it, it sort of made me realize the technical kind of precision that you need to lay out a story like this, and it really was good that way. Have you written other crime stories? Is this the first crime story you've ever written? I've dabbled with a few stories in the past, but this was the first one that I decided. I became very curious as I started writing it to just keep going with different stages with it. it originally, it was just something that was um, of, of a personal interest of mine just to sort of follow this story to a conclusion. And um, once I did that, it, then I was curious, okay, well, the next step, what, what, what would that next step be? And mm -hmm. so I, at each step, I, and every step of the way, I became more curious to see how far I could take it. Um, and I've been quite pleasantly um, surprised with how where, this, where I was able to take it. Mm -hmm. I really like, you know, people are very fascinated by psychopaths, you know, and there's famous psychopaths in, from movies and television. Um, and I found that your depiction of the psychopath character in the book was very accurate, like the most accurate description of a psychopath in the sense of it really gave a window into the internal world of a psychopath, and I thought it was very accurate. So tell me a bit about I, that. Well, I've, I've been interested in um, why people act the way they do and interested in, in people who really don't think that the world's rules or laws apply to them, people who think they're above the law, and often psychopaths fit that sort of criteria. And uh, Ray Owens, the fictional character in, in this story, he's definitely somebody who thinks he's above the law, that the rules don't apply to him. And I was interested to see how to develop that character and put him in this kind of setting and to see how he would really try to run amok in that and, and try to create a lot of chaos with the people around him because that's the kind of thing that he really enjoys doing. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so although I really wouldn't want to meet somebody like him in my personal life, <laughs> writing about him uh, and sort of seeing him in different settings was actually quite uh, quite interesting for me to do. Yeah. Do you have influences in terms of your crime writing? I'm a member of Crime Writers of Canada, and there are a lot of um, writers within Crime Writers of Canada um, that I am influenced by. So there's you know, Deborah Purdy Kong, uh, there's Robin Spano, uh, Gary Ryan as well. They've actually given, uh, Gary Ryan and Robin Spano had, had been gracious enough to give a blurb up on this book, The Killer Trail, as well. Robin's been a great support in Deborah in terms of just navigating the process of writing and then also the process for publication and, and, and the world of writing. So 
Um, I would say a lot of a big influence would be around other members that I'm aware of through Crime Writers of Canada. Excellent. So, like, you know, I was sort of saying to you, a lot of people have ideas or write, but it it takes a special effort to actually follow it through into this book form. So what do you think it takes to get an idea into book form? It takes patience. It takes perseverance and persistence. Uh, I've used this analogy before. I, I do run. So I would use the analogy of running a marathon or training for a marathon because it's not just one sprint and then you're done. Uh, it's quite a it's quite a long process, and and if you are hoping for an overnight sort of um, cause and effect, it doesn't happen that way. It takes quite a period of time and endurance to sort of stay with the ups and downs, the ebbs and the flows. There's days when writing seems to really come natural, and there's other days where you know you're you're struggling to find um, the words and and working on dilemmas on how to keep the story story going or, or which direction you want to go. So it really is a process and um, so endurance and persistence and, and but also starting with really if you're writing about if you are interested in writing to really go with what you're passionate about because that will help you through the good times as well as the, the challenging ones. Yeah. Um, what, like So you talked about the analogy of the marathon, kind of how does that translate into a daily discipline? Like you have a full-time job, you have a family, how like, how do you figure out that time to write? What does it take in terms of a daily practice of writing? Well, for one, at least for me, it takes, um, it's, a, it's, it's still an ongoing process. It's about needing to make the most of the time that you do have. So yeah, I, I do work full-time and I do have a young family and uh, and so trying to balance work life, uh, family life, work life, and writing life into some kind of harmonious balance takes a lot of work, and, and, and some days are better than others with that. So it, for me, it comes down to quality versus quantity of time, so really trying to protect some time uh, for writing and really making the most of it. And But I, it wouldn't be possible for me in my, in my situation if I didn't have support around me, uh, my wife, my family, my friends, uh, you know, really supportive. So it's it's about, and that's also kind of leads back to the the bit about it being a long process and a marathon. That it's it took this process for from the moment that I started writing the stories published between four and four and a half years. So it's not something that takes you know you just get at the computer and and you're done in in a few months. For some people that works that way and that's amazing. I'm in awe of that. But for other people, this instance with myself, it was a longer process. I don't know if you, like, there's some really one-liners in in the book in terms of the way the characters are thinking about things. And it seemed to me at the end, like, this is a seat aching for a sequel. Have you thought of kind of continuing the story of these two characters' intertwining lives? I have, and, and the way I would describe it is that I, like, I envision this story as being one one story, but it's told over three books, and so okay. the Killer Trail is the first book. Oh, excellent! Uh, yeah, and so I have the outline for the second book and the third, and I have been writing the second one. I've put everything on hold with the second one for the time being, with getting involved and in, in preparing for the launch of this book, the first book. But that's the way I envision it, and um, and that's what the hope is. I, a guideline for the second and third can be very helpful, but at the same time. 
I find it interesting to see by the time that I finish the second book how closely I'll meet that guideline because it is really supposed to be something to help you as a guide but not to be curtailing you into a narrow sort of position of, of where you take the story because it may find a life of its own and take it into other interesting directions but I have a general idea of, of really what I want to see happen in the second and the third Wow, I think it would, the way it's written with that very tight sort of storyline would make it an excellent movie as well. I could really see it as a movie as well as I was reading it. Well, thank you. I mean, interestingly for me, I'd be on a run or I'd be walking or hiking or something like that and certain lines or certain scenes would come up and I, for some reason that's how I envisioned certain pieces in this book uh, as playing out as scenes as opposed to um, large narrative pieces. It, I, I could see a, a piece of dialogue between two characters, for example, and I'd, you know, have to grab some recorder and just, you know, jot down what that line, one-liner was, or, or scramble it onto a piece of paper. Uh, and so that was quite interesting because those moments can happen anywhere. You know, you can be in a grocery store, or you can be walking, or it can be in the middle of the night when you just wake up and you're like, for some reason, some idea for a scene or a dialogue piece comes to mind, and so. Um, I, I, it's it's been interesting that way. Good. Anything else? Where can we get the book? It you it's uh, available at uh, local bookstores, chapters, uh, and then online through Chapters Amazon, and as well as through the publisher New West Press, out of uh, Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, through their website. You contact information how it can be purchased through them. Excellent. Thank you, Derek. Thank you very much. It was great to be uh, here this morning. Excellent. Hi, you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM. I'm Sarah Lapsley. This is the Arts Report. That was my interview with crime writer D.B. Carew talking about his debut novel, The Killer Trail. So that was really interesting. And as I said earlier, uh, I've read the book. I really like it. I think his window into the mind of a psychopath is deadly accurate, based, I think, on his experience as a forensic uh, social worker, and so you have to read the book. Uh, the psychopathic character, Ray Owens, is just cold and uh, loves to stir up trouble just because. And that's how psychopaths are. And so I thought I'd segue into the next part of our show with a little music from one of the world's most notorious living psychopaths, Charles Manson. And sometimes I even question his psychopathy because typically psychopaths aren't very creative people. Um, and he actually writes a good song. This is from his album, The Love and Terror Cult. His song, Look at Your Game Girl, will be right back on CITR 101.9 FM. There's a time for living The time keeps on flying Think you're loving, baby And all you're doing is crying Can you feel Ah, those feelings real Look at your game, girl Look at your game, girl What a mad delusion Living in that confusion Frustration and doubt Can you ever live without the game? The sad, sad game Mad game 
Castellano Street Party, Vancouver's biggest music and arts festival, is back July 12th from 11 a.m. until 9 p.m. Come on down to Westworth Avenue for over 50 great bands, including Grapes of Wrath, Ben Sinister, Humans, Lightning Dust, and a special performance by the Poppy Family, starring Susan Jacks with members of the New Pornographers, Black Mountain, and Destroyer. Over 40 tasty food carts, hundreds of Vancouver's best vendors, and the new Desjardins Family Zone will highlight the day. Catalano Street Party, Saturday, July 12th. Brought to you with love by the merchants of West 4th Avenue. The 37th annual Vancouver Folk Music Festival comes to Jericho Beach Park July 18th to the 20th. Over 60 acts from Joan Baez, Andrew Bird, Amos Lee, and Mary Lambert to Ozo Motley and Mauritania's Nura Mint Semali. There's a world of amazing music coming to your own backyard. The Vancouver Folk Music Festival. Info and tickets at thefestival.bc.ca. Hi, we're back on the Arts Report. This is Sarah Lapsley. So, yeah, let's talk about Nick Cave. Nick Cave is coming to Vancouver. I think CITR is actually one of the sponsors of the show. They've added a second show. So the first one's June 30th. The second one is July 1st at the Orpheum Theatre. And they're also screening a fabulous new movie about Nick Cave called 20,000 Days on Earth. So the theatrical release isn't until September although they are doing occasional selected screenings on his summer tour. So I, uh, I was lucky to get an advanced screener to watch, and I watched a bit of it. So maybe you want to go see the film. Um, I liked the film, what I saw of it. Um, you know, it's very him. I'm not a huge fan. I don't know that much about him, but it's... Um, it's it's not someone else's portrayal of him or someone else's take on him. It's his take on himself. And in that sense, it's it's very reflective of who he is. It's very stylized. Every detail is like, you know, controlled by him. Everything is like, you know, it's like him driving in his slick black car with his gold rings and his jet black hair. and And so everything's very put on in a sense, like, there's not that much authenticity. There was one kind of long section with him being interviewed by this famous Australian interviewer. I asked uh, Matt Granlin from the 
Australian Canadian music show like oh who's that guy he's like this very poncy Australian interviewer and together they were like sitting in these chairs literally by the fire having the most pretentious conversation and I was like oh my god um yet yet he's likable Nick Cave I think even though everything's so orderly and fashionable and he's sort of self-focused you actually still like him and there's a great scene where he drives sort of on the roads of uh, rural roads of Australia to go visit a friend of his and the guy was like an old hippie and they make tea and sit around and sort of chat about some of their past experiences they've had out on the road and they tell this story about Nina Simone and uh, how she came out on stage and was really kind of bizarre and she actually had bipolar disorder. Um, This was towards the end of her life how she was kind of weird to everyone and kind of threatening and then she got down behind the piano and just like blew everyone away and the way they talk about this uh performance you just are like wow and so yeah in the end I think if you like Nick Cave you'll definitely like this film I think I couldn't like latch on you know I I didn't watch the whole thing but if you're a fan of Nick Cave enough to go to the show then you should check out the screening or at least plan to go see the theatrical release in September and you know what I like about Nick Cave is you know some rock stars don't age gracefully that gracefully like Mick Jagger but Nick Cave and Brian Ferry they're like and Kim Gordon you know they're like the quintessential like they're still ultra cool uh and there's just a a gracefulness and elegance to their persona that uh, inspires those of us rockers who are in the aging process. But yeah, a little bit about Nick Cave. The, the shows are sold out. Mark Lanigan from uh, The Screaming Trees, I think, is opening. So he's Nicholas Edward Cave, born September 22nd, 1957. So he does a lot of, you know, obviously musician, author, screenwriter, composer, does a bit of acting. So he's been at it for like 30 years, uh, and he po- fronted the post-punk group The Birthday Party in the early 80s. So, yeah, he's very highly acclaimed. Ooh, heroin addict, honorary doctor of laws degree. Oh, he got a bunch of doctor, PhD, honorary PhDs. What does that count for if you don't do the work? Um, yeah, so I'm just reading off Wikipedia. There's nothing that you know, stellar here. But actually, I did look at his astrology chart, which I have have up here. And his birth time is unknown. So it doesn't tell us that much about him. Uh, But he was born in Warakanabeel, Australia, wherever that is. Um, And he's very, very like a super Virgo. Um, He's got... One, two, three, four, five, six planets just packed into Virgo. Sun, moon, Mars, Mercury. So he's basically like a Virgo on crack. And so I think that explains some of the very hardworking, stylized, detail-oriented part of him. So, yeah, check that out if you like his astrological chart. But he does have Venus and Scorpio, always a very sexy placement. So that's that kind of dark, brooding, sultry side. So Tuesday, July 1st, 20,000 Days Honor screening at the Van City Theater. And then I guess you could trip on over to the Orpheum Theater and see the actual concert. So just go to his website for that, nickcave.com. 
And it looks like a good website, and you can follow him on Twitter, Facebook, blah, blah, blah. But it is a good website. I'm now devaluating websites. And he's written all these books, and he's a very busy, productive Virgo, as they often are. So I'm just going to play a song by Nick Cave, because I like this one. Where is it now? Oh, I lost it. Oh, here it is. Nick Cave. This one's called Stranger Than Kindness, and I kind of liked it. I think it's an older song from his album new funeral no your funeral your funeral my trial we'll be back on the arts report stranger than kindness but a life from hotel Journey, they loiter 
This is how to make a great sandwich. Step one, get the soft but sturdy bread. Up in smoke, it's where my money goes. Step number two, butter it with your favorite spread. Step three, put in the meats and veggies. Step four, shake it up. Pepper, salt, and all. Step five, find another piece of sturdy bread. And that, my friends, is how you make a great sandwich. For more, listen to Soul Sandwich every Monday from 5 to 6 on CITR 101.9. Has mental illness or addiction touched your life? You might be interested in coming out to the Kaleidoscope, UBC's first and only student-created, peer-run mental health support group at the university's Vancouver campus. They offer a stigma-free place for people to share their stories with others going through similar experiences. The Kaleidoscope meets every week on Tuesdays from 5 to 6 p.m. at the Center for Student Involvement in Brock Hall. Learn more at the-kaleidoscope.com. Hey, we are back listening to CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Arts Report, and I'm your host for tonight, Sarah Lapsley. So, in keeping with my tendency to cover crime or mental health-related arts, I'm going to talk about the Man Up Against Suicide exhibition at the Foster Eastman, Gal- Eastman Gallery. I think that makes me think of Linda Eastman. Rest in peace. Um, that's at 1445 West Georgia Street, Vancouver. So it's actually been on for a while. It opened, I think, May 28th, and it goes only till June 28th. Oh, God, I hope I'm not like a month behind. I'm pretty sure it goes to, oh, here we are, to June 28th, May 29th to June 28th. So you've got three days to see it at the Foster Eastman Gallery, 1445 West Georgia Street. And so it's about men's mental health. It's sponsored by Movember. That's a big for men's health and the Foster Eastman Gallery, as well as the MD and Manic Depression and Suicide Network. This photo exhibition invites you to look at suicide through the eyes of 25 people experienced with a suicide relation, also perspectives of men and women suicide. Through these photographs, challenge the stigma message men the alternatives to taking one's life. So I thought it was important to talk about, I mean, 
going to a suicide show might not be the most in terms of, but it's a very, very, very important topic to discuss. So I'm going to just tell you a little bit about what I think about it. Um, some just statistics that struck me. So an average person, these are American statistics, but an average of one person dies by suicide every 16.2 minutes. So that means in the hour that you've been dedicatedly listening to the arts report, four people have killed themselves. And 30,000 people a year kill themselves. It's uh, for young people, 15 to 24 years old, suicide is the third leading cause of death. But it's actually elderly people and elderly men in particular who have the highest suicide rate is among men 80, over 85 years old. And so although women are more likely to attempt suicide, men are four times more likely to complete suicide for whatever reason, um, possibly because firearms are over half of all suicides are completed with firearms. There's a movie, and I can't remember if I've ever talked about it here, um, a movie I, you can watch for free online. It's very good and very, I guess, disturbing. It's a 2006 documentary film called The Bridge. And for, there's been a little more uh, media around this issue lately because they've now added um, or are in the process of adding some rails on the Golden Gate Bridge just now in 2014. But um, prior to that, there were no rails on the bridge and so people, it was like a suicide destination where people would come from all over the country to kill themselves. So on average, at the time of the filming, one person jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge every 15 days. Um, and, and, and starting from when it was built, people had found this was uh, a good place. Now, obviously, there was many uh, first responders that were dealing with this police and so on that were being quite traumatized uh, and, and you know, it's apparently a very effective way to kill oneself, but some people did survive. And, and there's actually a really key character in the film who was so sick with bipolar disorder and he jumped and after he jumped, and this is common with the survivors, they often regret their decision in midair, if not before. And so he jumped decided in midair that he didn't want to die. And he sort of cleverly landed himself in a way that although his bones were shattered, he survived. And uh, I was like panicked at the end of the documentary, like, where is he now? Oh my God. And I Googled him and he's like, you know, living well. He's now a motivational speaker and raises awareness about mental illness and suicide. So he's doing great work and getting a lot of media attention for his work. That's um, Kevin Hines. So that's an interesting documentary to watch. But I think my point about suicide is we're all affected by suicide. I can think of a few friends uh, just, you know, off the top of my head who have killed themselves. And it's and these are nice, good people. Depression is the number one predictor of suicide. Um, so people aren't thinking straight. They're extremely depressed when they're acting. And I think as a society and as friends and family of these people, we need to really have some awareness about how to act because suicide is present preventable. So I just, you know, gonna give you the four P's, which is just, you know, I've been trained to assess for suicide, but in the moment when I'm feeling anxious, someone's suicidal, I will often just go to this because it's very simple to remember. So it's the four Ps. 
Um, so if someone you suspect is suicidal, you can ask them these questions and then get help. Don't leave them alone. Work to get help. And, and maybe you can save a life. So um, the first P is pain. So assess for pain. I can see you're in a lot of distress right now. And get them to evaluate the level of emotional pain and distress. Obviously, the higher it is, the more at risk they are. Do they have a plan? And, and ask them if they have a plan. And I think it's important not to beat around the bush at this point. They might say, oh, well, I think about it. Dig down and say, you know, what is your specific plan? And if they say, well, I don't want to say it on the radio to upset people, but get them to articulate their specific plan. And the more specific it is and the more the more able they are to carry it out, then the higher the risk. Um, then previous attempts, if they've made serious previous suicide attempts that puts them at a higher risk and then protective factors so that's a positive way to kind of take the conversation what what's holding you back and people often say my family or my partner or my pet and get them talking about that and and sometimes even the conversation can kind of shift them in the moment as you get help so we all have responsibility to each other and that's what I strongly feel sometimes you can't prevent it right sometimes People are very serious, and they just move to do it. Um, and so we can't prevent it, but we can try try to get people help. And so I'm just thinking of um, a friend of a friend. I never met him, but he's a songwriter. He killed himself, I can't remember, in when he died. Well, this song was from about 2007. So it was only in the last few years. Um, John Bottomley, great folk singer, great Canadian folk singer. And it's really hard to lose these nice, talented people. And unfortunately, many people that kill themselves are nice and talented. And, you know, they just for whatever reason, life gets too hard. So I'm just going to play this song you lose, you gain. And just a reminder to check out Man Up Against Suicide photographic exhibition at the Foster Eastman Gallery. That's 1445 West Georgia Street. Uh, if you don't go, then just, you know, man up against suicide. Um, get help if you need it and help your friends if you think they're in trouble. So this is John Bottomley, You Lose You Gain. I'm going to be back to talk about the Leaping Thespians fashion show. Tossed and turned 
listening to the arts report we're sort of heading into the last few minutes stay tuned at 6 p.m for all ears so what else i'm going to play tomorrow night it's called the other place and so it's a new production to vancouver but it's actually a play by an american playwright Shar white and it premiered off broadway in 2011 and then moved to Broadway. It was really successful. So I'm looking forward to going to see it tomorrow night and next week on the show, which will be July 2nd. We'll have a cast member on to interview. So the plot uh, is like Juliana is 52 years old, a brilliant drug company scientist. So she's at a convention. And then, I don't know, there's some family stuff, estranged daughter, arguments with her husband who might be divorcing her, some mysterious stuff. Missing daughter, delusions, brain tumor. So it's kind of right up my alley. So I'm looking forward to go and seeing that. And also next week on July 2nd is the Leaping Thespians Theater Group Butch and Femme Fashion Show. So I'm in it as a model, as I've said every week, and I'm very, very, very excited to be in it. And last night we had our rehearsal, and so I've got my outfits, and it's like full on. You've got to come see this. I've got some great outfits. My favorite one is Leather Pride. I'm wearing this like sparkly biker hat and a white leather mini skirt, and I'm, yeah, it's going to be crazy. And what's great about it is there's lots of different looks, so it's like Victorian, lesbian, 1920s 
1930s. I'm kind of like an Al Capone 1930s dude. And there's like 1940s army femme, 50s, I'm kind of a Marilyn Monroe femme, 1960s, like hippie fembot, kind of different looks, 70s disco, can't remember what else, 80s. Um, and then they've got some great ones for the 90s. Like it just, it makes you laugh because, you know, it's so 90s. They have some vanilla ice and, and different kind of grungy uh, gothy looks from the 90s. So it's going to be really fun. And there's actually lots of, burlesque performers, drag queens, um, Bourjou's band is going to play. Bourjou has a vintage store on 16th and Main, as many people know. So it's back by popular band, the Butch and Femme Fashion Show. So it celebrates 100 years of lesbian fashion with a night of music, comedy, dance, and community. So there's two shows, Wednesday, July 2nd, and Thursday, July 3rd, and it's at Heaven's Door, 1216 Butte Street, down in the West End. So I do hope you come. Um, and so, yeah, it's a full-on variety show. Come early and stay late. I know I will. And you can also shop on site for vintage clothing, selling clothes that cater to your inner butch or femme or both or anywhere in between. There's also on Thursday uh, DJ and you can buy vintage clothes straight from the catwalk, like straight from my back. You can buy the things I'm wearing. So do come. I'm hoping at least one friend or relative will come out and see me. You can get tickets at Little Sisters Bookstore, 1238 Davy Street or Bone Rattle Music as well as online. So the Leaping Thespians are a great theater company, and so this is to raise money for them. They wanted to create plays they wanted to see. So even in this era of same-sex marriage and the L word, we're still looking for art which holds up a mirror to our lives. So it's an award-winning women's theater company bringing stories of lesbians' lives to anyone who wants to watch. Debuted in Nelson, BC in 1990 and is now based out of Vancouver. They perform all over the province. So they present original work and nurture emerging talents on stage and behind the scenes. So you can sponsor them or get involved. They've got a great website, www.leapingthespians.ca. You can like them on Facebook, etc., etc. So do come out and we're... We are um, doing all the eras to some great um, songs, right? So I really like the 90s one, and I'm going to leave you with that for now. Um, and it's Bikini Kill, Rebel Girl, very 90s, Riot Girl. Um, and then stay tuned for All Ears in just a few minutes. Here we go, and I'll see you next week. We'll talk about the other place and we'll talk about the dances for a small stage it's back sort of dance pairings at the emeralds we'll have someone from that on as well and sahar will be back and it won't be long before we're all going to see bard on the beach so thanks for tuning in thanks Derek db Carew for coming on and talking about the killer trail so do check out that book and i'll talk to you next week here's bikini kill rebel girl
Touch my left one, take one.